Okay, well, welcome everybody to podcast number three in the uh, Floodlit Dreams series. Uh, this week we've got one of our authors, uh, Neil Beasley, with us. Um, Neil wrote a marvellous book for uh, Floodlit Dreams called Football's Coming Out a few years back, Life as a Gay Fan and Player. And we're going to talk uh, with Neil, that's Seth uh, Burkett, um, my partner in football's, in football. In Floodlit Dreams, apologies. Um, and we're going to talk about the book and how it came into being. So, Seth, why don't you kick us off? Sure. So, um, yeah, I had the pleasure of working with Neil. I suppose you can call it a pleasure. Is that right, Neil? <laughs> <laughs> experience, I always say. Yeah, I had, an, I had an interesting experience working with Neil, I suppose, then. Um, and I, I did actually find the concept of the book really interesting because despite playing football all my life, I'd never really taking time to think what it would be like um, as a gay man to play football. I hadn't really considered the homophobia, which is kind of rampant in the sport. So, I mean, I guess, are those, were those your motivations for wanting to write the book? Uh, yeah, in part, because I think there's a massive belief that there are no gay players or fans in football. Um, I don't think it, it's unreasonable to say that. I don't think that would be a shock to many people. I think the emergence in the last few years of fan groups um, and the question about is there or isn't there any gay players um, has certainly brought it to a discussion point. But back when some of the experiences that I talked to you about and that we wrote about were 10, 15 years ago now, um, the world was a very different place. And I felt actually... There, there was a story to be told, and there certainly are stories to be told um, from gay players and fans' points of view. Yeah, I mean, I found it really eye-opening, to be honest. Um, what, what you said was really interesting. I mean, one of the, the main quotes, really, or the main concepts of the book was about how you try to hide your sexuality through your playing style. And you became this really masculine player who modelled himself on Stuart Pearce to kind of avoid having questions about that asked. I mean, that must have been really tough. Yeah, yeah, it, it's a bit because, and I suppose a lot of footballers would say this, but I'm genuinely a nice guy. Um, but on the football pitch, for some reason, I felt like I was genuinely concerned any moment, and there was no reason for this, but any moment I was going to be outed as this gay player <laughs> and like my whole life would come tumbling down. And the only way to try and avoid that happening was to hack somebody down. <laughs> like near the halfway line and so yeah you sort of like it's hard to explain but you do put on this sort of act and it stems from the changing room environment like you are putting on an act the whole time um and you're probably rather than fitting in you're probably looking more ridiculous constantly looking away and looking at your boots the entire time and not really engaging in anybody especially when they were talking about going out at night and i guess that 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 takes you out onto the pitch and but the only way you could do it on the pitch is by acting like a mad dog or that's certainly the only way I found of doing it so then you get a reputation um like I had in I played in a cup final and we had to have a program and the manager had to do a write-up about everyone and he just put in mind a uh, tough tackling no nonsense defender and I thought oh I always had dreams of being so much more than that <laughs> but that's pretty much summed up what I've become because you're putting on this whole act the whole time mm. And I can confirm that's exactly how you still play football, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I'm too slow now. It's, it's not on purpose anymore. Yeah. Um, I mean, let's go back because I remember when you sent me the manuscript or, or rather, you know, you sent me a, um, a sort of extract of where you'd got to with it. 
and and I remember thinking, this is really promising, um, and nobody's written a book like this before. Life as a gay fan uh, and a player, nobody's actually written a book like this. Um, and it was raw. It was a bit raw, which is why I asked Seth to work with you on it, so that the two of you could could sort of collaborate and come up with with something. But what, the thing that um, always strikes me with with um, when I when I get to see the material is what is the turning point moment in somebody's life um, that sets them on a new path from from their old path, and I and I'll never forget. And it's the great opening chapter is when your mother your mother turns to you and says, "Neil, are you gay?" You go, "No, no." T just take us through that moment because that that to me is a great sort of turning point in your life. Uh yeah, and. Yeah, it's one of the most defining moments of my life. And it's amazing how I can look back and laugh now. But I was just sat on the sofa and I was, I was watching at my mum's house. I was watching Simpsons. Um, and I knew there was a problem. I knew there was something coming because she was looking at this magazine and the page hadn't turned in ages. And this is a well-rehearsed routine. And normally I've said something to my sister or a bad school reports come in or some nonsense, it is very trivial. But this went on for ages and ages. And she sort of, it was so matter of fact, like probably the worst way you should ever ask anybody. In fact, it goes against everything I've ever read or spoke about on the subject. But she just went, Neil, are you gay? And I've, I went from naught to 100 on the panic scale in a split second. And my go-to was, no. And it was... <laughs> Uh, you've, uh, it was, it's odd because it was made so easy for me to go yes but the go-to was because it's what you've been doing your whole life it's what I've been working against it's what I've been trying to hide on a football pitch it was automatically just to go no and then something in my brain obviously clicked and uh, I said yeah I am she didn't move she didn't say anything and about a second later and it's so funny now because it's just not what life is like she said I just want you to know it's a lonely life and I still laugh now because oh, if only she knew, <laughs> it was, couldn't have been further from it. Yeah, yeah. So talk us through your collaboration then with, with Seth. I put the two of you together and, and you know, how, did you, how did you find that, the process then of, of actually writing the book? Um, it's, it was, working with Seth was brilliant. Um, Seth, he's such a good laugh. And he's such a fun person. Like he really brought out the best in me. Really? And then you think really? you think you're having a good laugh, and all of a sudden he spears you with a really deep personal question. Yeah. Oh, he's, <laughs> he's learning. Then he's learning. He's, yeah. he's absolutely brilliant at making you think it's all friendly and everything's going yeah. well, and he's totally on your side. And then yeah. goes straight in there with, "How did that make you feel?" <laughs> he does it every time. <laughs> he's amazing at it. He's amazing at it. I loved working with him. We had a real good rapport. We got on really well. Um, and he took me to places emotionally that I didn't even want to go. There were places that I'd buried stuff and um, I wasn't always appreciative of it. But yeah, he brought a lot of stuff to the surface. Well, that's probably because he kept bringing material back to me and I'd say, not good enough, Seth. I need more. I need more. <laughs> yeah, he mentioned that a few times, actually. Uh, <laughs> normally when we discuss something and then he come back and said, oh, I just need to ask you more on this. I, I did wonder where that had come from. I think also he kind of used me as the villain at times as well, you know. Oh, Ian wants a bit more on this, or Ian wants, you know, rather than... You can't, you can't take blame for this stuff, Ian. <laughs> <laughs> so, 
So come on, t- talk us through your, your footballing career then, this, this sort of, that, that reached its, you know, reached enormous highs. And I, I'm, I mean, actually, I'm not taking the mickey here because Birmingham Blaze, you, you know, you were league champions and you became chairman and all the rest of it. Just talk us through your football career. Um, so genuinely, as a kid, I hated playing football. My dad pushed me into it from a very early age, which I imagine is the story of many kids. Um, And it was only when I got to about 13 or 14 that I really wanted to play again because that's what everyone did at school. During your 15 and your hour-long breaks, that's that's what you went and did. Um, So I started joining a few local clubs and it's where I met one of my best friends, Joe. We played together for, well, forever now, just about every club I've been at. Um, And I I did all right in a school team, in a sixth-form team. I I was a regular starter. I think probably because I was the only one that wanted to play right back. Um, and I joined a local team, a village team called Hayford, which was a very typical sort of village team. The committee had been there since the Battle of the Somme and like they'd always done things exactly the same. Usually with a pitch to resemble the Somme as well. <laughs> very, yeah, to be fair to them, the pitch weren't too bad. It just wasn't flat at any point. Um, so you had to adapt your game. Um, and then whilst I was playing for Hayford, so I must have been about 20, 21, um, we were quite successful. We did all right. Uh, we always finished about fourth or fifth, got to a couple of cup finals and stuff. Um, somebody, a guy I went on a date with, said to me that he played football for a gay team in London. Now, I was living in Bicester at the time. So <clears throat> I looked up the league and I thought, oh, London's not too far. That sounds a laugh. But there was also one in Birmingham. And I've been to London so many times. It's, it's easy to get to actual London, but once you're inside, all the transport and everything, it's a right pain in the backside. Whereas I could just drive to Birmingham. It's a doddle, isn't it? Like you can, your car's not always there when you've parked it, when you come back to it, but you can always drive anywhere in, London, in Birmingham. It's easy. Um, so I joined Birmingham Blaze. I played for a couple of years. I left for a bit um, following our relationship breakdown. It was a bit messy, my fault. Um, and then I joined again a couple of years later um, and the current chairman, we were rubbish, like we finished bottom of the National League. Um, I, it was already the lowest standard of football you could possibly imagine. Uh, most people were drunk when we were playing um, from the night out before. And the, they were after a new chairman and I took over. Around about the same time I met Dave, my husband, he was also playing in the team. Um, and I wasn't happy with the direction things were coming. We were a bit of a laughing stock. Whereas London had five or six teams, we had one team in a city the size of Birmingham, and we were like the laughing stock. We were we were bottom. We were we were rubbish. We were getting battered every week. Um, and I thought that the easiest way to challenge and change things is to put your head above the pit. We're expected to be rubbish. We were gay team. We we're expected to get battered all the time. But one of the best ways you can change things is to meet someone at their level, is to come up to their level and challenge them and beat them. And so we set about a two-year target to win the National League that we were in. Um, we recruited quite well. We got players to buy into the ethos. We moved away from uh, solely gay players and we went towards you you now call them allies but they were gay friendly players um and which actually i thought was a better way to go anyway there's nothing stronger than um 
someone standing up for you and it doesn't necessarily affect them. You've seen it lately with the Black Lives Matter thing. It's very powerful seeing a lot of white people um, mm. sticking up and supporting this movement. Mm -hmm. um, so we set about changing things and we were very successful. Within the, the second year, we'd won the league and won promotion. By the third year, we'd, we'd won the league again and we'd also won the cup and we'd also won um, a European Gay Games gold medal. So uh, for about 11 months, we were the regional, national and international gay champions. Um, after that, it, it's exhausting. You're, yeah. like, it's not on the level of you being chairman of Weymouth, but after a while, it's exhausting and yeah, what, you need a break. People, what people don't understand about being chairman is when the team's doing badly, it's usually your fault. You've not put enough money in or you've picked the wrong manager or whatever. But when the team's doing well, it's absolutely nothing to do with the chairman. <laughs> yeah. The chairman doesn't take any, any credit for it whatsoever. That, that's it. And people were starting to moan because we were doing well. People weren't play, some people weren't playing as much and there was a lot of infighting. And it's odd because everyone got exactly what they'd ever wanted and what, mm. we, and what we'd worked towards and deserved. Mm. But it was just getting more and more challenging. And I think partly I needed a break. Yeah. Your patience starts to wear thin and you end up neglecting other things because although we only trained once a week and played once a week, it's literally a 24 seven thing. There's yeah, not a day yeah. goes by where you don't talk On to people about some time. aspect. Yeah. 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 And I decided to walk away and I played on and off then for a couple of years. Dave went back as manager. I played for a bit. Then my ACL went, I had another year and a half out. It's fixed now, but I probably won't play again properly. And I'm really into my coaching now. I've, I've done my badges. I've got a decent job at a local team as an under-21 manager. Right. I absolutely love it. Um, so yeah. I think from a playing point of view, it's time to park that and it's time to move into coaching. Okay. Tell us a bit more about the um, tensions, because that's another really interesting aspect of the book I found. Um, is that at the gay team, you had someone come to you and say, Neil, we're getting a bit straight here. And there are a lot of um, yeah. people who thought you should be a gay only team in comparison to having gay and, and allies together. Yeah, well, we have to remember that football, as in life, people mostly look after number one. So when we were losing and they were playing, they were all up for, let's get some straight players in, let's get better. But when the straight players started to replace them, it's very easy to throw it back in your face and say, oh, we're getting a bit straight here. Now, I heard this several times. It, it happened around Pride because we didn't support Pride as well when we become a 50-50 straight gay team as we did when we were solely a, a gay team. But that's nothing to do with people's views on whether they support it or not. It's because it's a very expensive party. You go into the same pubs in the same streets that you went to the week before, but this time you're paying £25 for the privilege. Um, so we never really supported Pride as much as we could. Um, and yeah, there were moans from within, within the club and from some older members that we were becoming too straight, which is an utterly ridiculous thing to say, considering, well, imagine how we'd feel, feel if you had a straight-only team. It would be ridiculous, wouldn't it? And actually the FA would sanction you for it. Um, were there but, regulations as to how many, like in the old days, how many European players you could have and that? And, and I mean, how do you how do you tell? I mean, are you, uh, I mean, could you imagine the testing? How do you ask people? <laughs> huh? uh, no, it was uh, no. There's there's no rules about anything at all. Um, right. 
And I, yeah, I mean, people come and play for gay team for all sorts of reasons. Yeah, you get a lot of people that come along and are sh tell you they're straight. And as time goes on, they become more comfortable and end up coming out. Oh, yeah. <clears throat> um, you get people that are genuinely straight and they just enjoy the football. Um, mm. And you get all the, the failures at straight football that come to the gay league because they think it's going to be easy and they're going to look good. And that isn't often the case. Mm. Um, but yeah, there's no, there's no quotas or anything like that. Um, and I'm not even sure how you'd go about measuring. Oh, quite, quite. But that, that is interesting. That I mean, all football clubs have politics, personalities, economics, tensions within them. Do you think they were amplified by the nature of your club or was it just the same that you've encountered everywhere else? There's a lot. Of, uh, we always joke, me and Dave, that in the gay world of football, everyone has to have a title. So the club has about 40 people on the committee and everyone's in charge of something. It's ridiculous. Um, we do get a lot of problems. There's a lot of infighting. There's also, in the gay community as a whole, uh, mental health is a much bigger issue in the gay community than it is in the, in the heterosexual community. The suicide rate of LGBT people is so much higher than it is in the heterosexual circles. And that is for a variety of reasons. But because we do have people who have got a lot of frustrations and outcasts and then they finally found somewhere where they can be themselves. I think you do have a lot more infighting from time to time. It, it was difficult to manage. Um, I wasn't always the best at that. I, you've worked with me. I don't have the most patience. I, I'm quite, if I want to do something, I'll crack on and do it. I get frustrated when I can't. If I, you know, I don't have, I'm no good at long-term visions. <laughs> I'm all about here and now. Um, Okay. Yeah, it was it was challenging. It was challenging. Mm. Do you have any connection with Birmingham Blaze these days? Um, not really. No. Um, I know a couple of the lads still, but that time in my life's gone. And that chapter's finished. Mm -hmm. It's time mm -hmm. to go on and do something else now. And mm. it it was so consuming, as you'll know. It's so consuming that yep. it's just nice not to worry about things. So that I mean that was you as a as a gay player and you became a chairman as well and and so on. What about as a gay fan? I mean, you're a Coventry City supporter. Tell us what it's like watching, you know, uh, as a gay fan. Um, yeah, you can have, and I have had some difficult moments watching football matches. The most difficult come uh, in an England match, but yeah, you you. I'm always mindful of. It's, it's the reaction of people you're with. So I'm happily watching, well, nowadays happily watching Coventry play. Um, and then someone will go and shout something. Can you, I always feel like I'm not being true to myself if I don't turn around and say something. Mm -hmm. Now I never do say anything because it's just not worth the hassle, is it? Most of the time they're not even homophobic. It's just they go to childish response. But I always have an internal battle when I hear someone say something. I did when I was at the, an England match with, my dad and my sister and Dave and the guy sat directly behind us was abusing Jordan Henderson and using homophobic terms. And I thought, Do you know what? I just want to turn around and smack you one, but I can't out of embarrassment because we've had, but equally when I spoke to my mum about this previously, she said he felt equally as embarrassed. He wanted to turn around and smack him, but didn't because you were there. Um, so what did you react in any way? No, I didn't. I didn't say a word. And mm. there's, 
there's not a football match I go to with England where I don't think about that. And I think, I don't, I think about that. I should have said something. I should have mm. challenged him because it wasn't for me to be embarrassed. It wasn't for my dad to be embarrassed. It was for him to be embarrassed. And, mm. and that's, that's the wrestle. Um, I'm involved with Coventry on a club level. So I'm part of their uh, supporters forum group. Um, I do challenge, challenge them on discrimination issues. We've had a fan arrested this year. Um, for homophobic abuse towards the officials. Um, one of only a handful of clubs that have had that. Um, and when, when I approached the club, they weren't that interested in engaging. They were aware of it. They said they'd had several reports from Kick It Out. And one of them would have been from me. Um, <laughs> and they, they dealt with it. They weren't bothered about engaging. Coventry are one of only four clubs, I think, to have a player banned and fined for homophobic comments on social media. Um, again, they... They don't seem to have learned their lessons. Um, I don't feel like they they treated that with the same level of seriousness that a player being done for racism would have been treated. Um, I think there's a long way to go in a professional game. I really do. Well, I mean, let, let's talk about that a little. Do you still hear on the when you're when you go to a, a game at Coventry? Is that, do you still hear it? Do you still, or or are we? You see, I went to a Chelsea game earlier this season and I was absolutely shocked by the level of abuse towards officials, the opposition. But the one thing I didn't hear, and this was, it did surprise me, was any racist comments. I thought there would still be racism. And it seems to be one area that fans have learnt, in this country at least, where it is a, gr a huge improvement. But do you sense that that is happening with um, you know, with homophobic remarks and comments in the same way? No, I, I genuinely don't. I don't think the FA, uh, I don't think the will's there. I mean, it's, it will take a, more of a backseat now because of the Black Lives Matter thing. And obviously that's very important. And the FA and the Premier League have got behind it. Um, I, but I think, once again, that will be at the expense of the LGBT community. I think every time we sort of get somewhere and make strides, the FA seem to get a great opportunity presented to them to show their stance on it. And mm. I think they always fail miserably. I really do. Um, mm. I, I, I hand on heart, gone. Rainbow laces. I, I'm one of a growing group of gay fans and players that think it's nothing more than tokenism. Uh, it's so easy, and it just to uh, hold a pair of rainbow laces or change the laces. Like, what does it even mean? Can we not be a bit more inventive? We've it started off all right, but now you've given clubs an opportunity just to go, yeah, we support rainbow laces, and do nothing more throughout the year. They do nothing. Um, as far as I'm concerned, the quicker it's gone, the better. Really, that's an interesting viewpoint. That so, football is very good at tokenism. And, and very poor at lasting change. What, what needs to be done then, Neil, apart from, you know, rainbow laces, to get away from that and make something meaningful? The problem is there's no human side to it, really. With racism, you had John Barnes having bananas thrown at him. You haven't got an openly gay player to get behind. You're not going to get one in this climate, I don't believe, but until the FA are absolutely forced to act and they will only be when there is a human element to it. Nothing's going to change. Mm. It's going to take an entire club to get behind their player to start the change. 
and mm. at the moment I I can't see it happening. I, I'm stunned that we've got this far with nobody sort of in a I mean, you get non-league players that, that will come out and, and they've been very uh, well received by teammates and press and, and what have you. But no one dares, it seems to me, just yet at the Premier League, which, which actually shocks me. I mean, I'm all for, forever reading, quite often reading that there are two or three gay Premier League players that are negotiating with the PFA, negotiating with the Premier League and the FA to time it right to, you know, when the climate's right. Um, why, why is it still uh, um, going to be such a problem for a, a, an elite player to come out while he's playing? It, while he's it's playing? difficult at the top level. Football's very globalised at the top level. Your local non-league players or your lower league players, the fans there, are, it's a, there's a better community feel. It, everyone knows everybody. I can see how it's, it's easier to get behind people and support them. Uh, it's easier to call people out on abuse. The higher up you go, particularly recently, uh, it's Pride Month. Uh, the professional clubs are all tweeting their support for Pride Month. And then just for a laugh for sport, you just look at the comments. Now, an awful lot of them are... So with Liverpool, for instance, I've looked at Liverpool lately. A lot of homophobic comments in there. When you look at where the people are from, they're from Egypt. Obviously, these are Liverpool fans. They are fans yeah. of Mo Salah. But yeah. Egypt is... LGBT rights are somewhat behind ours. Um, and you get that at the top level because football is so globalised. The whole world isn't, doesn't share the same view as us. And what a boring place the world would be if it did, if every country was the same. But certainly when it comes to LGBT rights, there's not that many countries that are up there with us. Now, should they be? That's a different debate. Do we have a right to tell other people what to think? Probably not. But if you were a footballer and you were considering coming out of one of these clubs for the amount of abuse you'd get, it's just not worth it. It's not just you you have to think about. It's your family. Mm. It's your friends. I can, I, I can fully understand why they don't come out while they're playing. And they do normally when... Well, Robbie Rogers left the country and then come out. Yeah. Um, Thomas Hitzelsberger had retired when he came out. Um, and I understand why they do it. I do. I don't know how we're going to change the situation, though. I mean, Seth, for the book, you found a Premier League player willing to speak about the issue of homosexuality in the game. Um, tell us about how you went through that process. I did, yes. Um, I was working at Nike Academy at the time and had access to quite a few Premier League players through there and asked the player to contribute Um the player played for his country, played in the Premier League, played abroad as well. Um, and he actually came up with some really interesting points, um, such as in America, it, how you know football doesn't have this masculinity kind of attached to it. So it seems a bit easier to come out over there. Um, and also, as Neil said, he said about in the Premier League, how the vast majority of players are OK with it. But at the same time, you've got these players coming from um, much more conservative countries where LGBT rights don't really exist and for those players they just think that homosexuality is wrong full stop so on the one hand you've got players in the Premier League who are becoming much more accepting on the, on the other hand you're getting more players who are becoming totally unaccepting of it so it's um quite a strange situation I'd say in the Premier League it seems from speaking to him whereas lower down maybe in League One League Two um it seem, would seem that things are getting better yeah they're getting better 
more slowly, I'd say. I mean, one thing that I found really interesting when I was researching the book is I went and played a few games with Neil for Birmingham Blaze. And one, one of the games that really sticks in my mind um, is because it's, I, I didn't know what to expect. I didn't know um, what the style of football would be like, where it'd be different. Um, I found that it was kind of, as Neil suggests, it was, if anything, it was more physical than, <laughs> than um, the football I'd been used to playing. We played against this team for all the homophobia day, um, who were a straight team. And it was all nicey nicey before the game, if you remember Neil, like, you know, all shaking hands, having a laugh. Then the game started, we went one nil up and they got a bit antsy. And then we went two nil up and all of a sudden it started getting a bit, a bit nasty really, the, the atmosphere and a few bad tackles flying in and this kind of sense of togetherness just totally went. Um, and so though things are changing, um, they're just not changing enough and people still kind of have this... Do you think some of that, that game particularly though, I'm, I'm trying to think it through, do you think that was because... The, the opposition think we shouldn't be losing to a bunch of gay people. We're stronger, yeah. we're harder. and, and That's exactly what it is. Yeah, they're right. happy, enough, happy enough to support it, but you couldn't possibly be seen to lose. That would yeah. be just too much to take. Yeah, which was but, really eye-opening for me. Really eye-opening scene. Yeah, I'm sure. But that is the old stereotypes that gay people are somehow weak and, and you know, that they, they can't be physical on a football field. Just as, you know, when I was... I was starting out as a football writer back in the, back in the 80s I can remember a football manager saying to me well black players are fine but you know they're great going forward but you can't have black defenders they've got no discipline you know I mean these stereotypes are ridiculous um, and, and clearly they are with gay people as well but it obviously influenced the way you played the game as well that you went the other way Neil that, that you know um, to, to prove that you didn't but just getting back to this this idea, let me put you on the spot, Neil. You say you understand why they they don't a, a Premier League player doesn't come out. If you were a Premier League player now, comfortable in your sexuality, comfortable in your own skin, at where you are in your life, would you come out? If you were oh. a Premier League player, <laughs> um. if you had that platform for good. <sighs> Um, I'd like to think so. At this age, I think I, I would say I would because of the amount of good you could do for the youngsters. Mm. If I was happy in myself at 21, probably not because you have a whole career ahead of you. I would like to think I would, I would have done it still in the game because there's just so much good you can do for others. You, you're not going to see the sea of change until somebody does and it would be great to be that person um and yeah i'd like to think i would i'd like to think i would yeah. but yeah. it's tough because i like i said to you before it's your family you have to consider as well yeah. and you do have to consider that yeah of course and i mean i'm i think they would probably i don't know i mean who can tell until you're in that situation they'd obviously back you it's a question of of what they'd have to deal with and whether they would be able to deal with it but, I mean, we were talking um, earlier about um, Coronation Street. There's a gay footballer storyline in that. What do you think of that? Is it, is it preparing the way? Is it, you know, do all these things help? I think it's brilliant, and I think they've got it spot on. I really do. I think 
the the way they brought the storyline about. So he was, I can't, for the life of me now, I can't remember his name, but he was in a secret relationship. He was concerned about it. His dad was applying pressure for him not to come out because um, it might ruin his career. There were question marks through the storyline about whether his dad was homophobic or just overly protective. Um, I think we've got to the stage now where it, he's more overly protective. Um, his his boyfriend at the time inadvertently let slip that he was in relationship with him. Um, I'm filling you in here, in I, Seth? Because I know you haven't seen this. Um, <laughs> not going to as well. <laughs> uh, everyone found out about it. He was then not in the team. Um, someone then made a comment to him in the changing room. And the, uh, the star player for Weatherfield County, uh, Tommy... Oh, I can't remember his name. Weddington or something like that. Yeah, it's something like that. Yeah, stuck up from in the changing room. And I'm interested to see how the storyline progresses. Obviously, COVID's meant it's on one one day a week now, unfortunately. But um, I I think they've got it right. I think they've got it realistic um, as far as they could. I think they've shown a lot of the pressures involved. Um, We do have to see how the storyline progresses. But... Do you know what? There'll be a lot of younger kids out there, a lot of younger players who yeah. are sat in the living room with their mum and dad watching this now and who haven't quite had the strength or the courage or been able to come out that are watching and are finding a lot of comfort in this storyline, I think. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. And I, I mean, it's brilliant that, that you say that, Neil, because I, I actually think that, you know, obviously the mainstream media, I think they were, I think by and large, the mainstream media would back a gay player these days in the way that they've backed the, the Black Lives Matter. Um, they've stood behind, you know, it's one of the improvements in the mainstream media over the last 20 years that it, that it has um, got behind causes like this. But the thing is the mainstream media now is much less powerful than where it was. And it's, it's things like soap operas that people watch um, of that demographic that need to, to kind of see this stuff. That, w- that will change things, I think. I like to think if I'd still been a scriptwriter on Dream Team, I'd have definitely put forward a storyline like that. Absolutely. And uh, and seen it through and got in an advisor to to how, how we would play. Like Corey do. They're very good at that. And in fact, um, at least three of the writers on Dream Team are now on Coronation Street. So um, it may well be that it came from, from that experience. But um, I mean, here's hoping, here's hoping. Yep, that's it. Exactly, that's it. Mm. Seth, what uh, what do you reckon? Uh, the both of you can be very proud of of footballs coming out. It was long listed for the William Hill Sports Book of the Year, and for that to happen for uh, to an independent publisher for a start, but also to two kind of very young writers like that was. Um, was amazingly uh, amazing achievement and something I'm very proud of at, at Floodlit Dreams. Tell tell me now how you look at the book. I mean, obviously it's made you a fortune, Neil. Um, how how do you look back at this book? <laughs> Ghostwriter, I'm I'm so proud of it, um, and the fact that it's been longest, like you say, is probably the proudest um, achievement of my, of my writing career to date. Um, I really do think so, and also it's my first ghostwriting experience. Um, I found it fascinating to learn um, from Neil's point of view, seeing a totally different side to football um, and also questioning a lot of stuff that I did in the past um, and a lot of the language I used in the past because I did, you know, I 
wouldn't consider myself homophobic, but a lot of the language I've probably used in the football environment in the past has essentially been homophobic and you start to see it from Neil's point of view and it's um you just question a lot of stuff mm-hmm. then the actual ghostwriting aspect as well um was brilliant because Neil is great laugh um it's my first experience ghostwriting a book and it was amazing to become such good friends with the person you're working with and kind of learn a lot about their life about their experiences their challenges and how they've overcome those challenges to you know, really flourish as Neil has and do so much good work in the game um, to elevate gay football, to elevate Birmingham Blaze um, and to also raise awareness of the issues surrounding it, which he's done really well in the book. Mm. Neil? I'm just really proud now. Um, I was all nervous at the time when it was coming out, but now, you know, I just look back and think, at least I've done something. I've done my part. <laughs> I don't know if it's my ego, but every so often you get a tweet from somebody, don't you, that's read your book and like means a lot to them or they're really pleased. And do you know what? I do take a lot of pride in it. Um, like, you know, I've gained two really good friends and you too. I've, I've obviously made a little difference to somebody somewhere. Um, yeah. Do you know what? I'm just really, I'm really proud of the work we've done. Um, and if we just helped or got through to one person, it was worth it. Um, thankfully, I know we've done a lot more than that. Um, I thought I was going to get rich out of it. it didn't happen might happen in the future but I'm incredibly proud of the work we've done well who knows we're still waiting for a film producer to pick this up I do think it's it would be an amazing TV series or a, an amazing film or, or something um, I, I know what you mean I, I, mean, I remember writing Addicted years and years ago with Tony Adams and you know you look back and, and people that come up to you and say do you know what your book help get me sober I, I realized I had a drink problem or whatever and stuff like that makes it makes it all worthwhile yep. um, and I have to say you know I, I'd like to think as the years have gone on that I've become rather more open um, like I mean you all know my late wife Vicky who who came up with the title by the way Vicky Orby she came up with footballs coming out she said well it can't be anything else that's that's the title and it was a good title it's a great title um, but, you know, Vicky helped me to see women in the workplace in a very, very different way. And I like to think that, that you know, meeting, becoming friends with, with more and more black people, it just becomes part of life, for example, that, that, that they are, you know, alongside you. And it's the same, it's the same, hopefully, we'll get there with, with, with sort of gay people. I'm like Seth, if I'm honest, but going back in the 70s, you know, being on the football terrace in the 70s, I suspect I did make remarks about Nancy boys and pufters and all that kind of thing with players that weren't getting stuck in. I suspect I did make racist remarks now and then. I suspect I did make sexist remarks. Um, well, I more than suspect, I'm sure I did when I was in my 20s and what have you. Uh, things that I regret, but as you, you know, as you go on in life, hopefully that you learn and, um, and you learn to respect people. And that was certainly one reason why I wanted to to publish footballs coming out. And as the publisher of that book, I'm incredibly proud of it. Like, you know, that's what Floodlit Dreams is about in, in, in my experience. That's what we want to be about. We want to publish books by people that that we want to make a difference. So, and you have, Neil, you have. Thank you. Thank you both. There we are, guys. The book is called Football's Coming Out by Neil Beasley with Seth Burkett, Life as a Gay Fan and Player, 
available on the Floodlit Dreams website for an absolute bargain. I don't know what it is at the moment, um, but it will, it will be a bargain, whatever we're charging you for it. Uh, and also on Amazon, but don't buy from them, buy from Floodlit Dreams. Thanks very much, guys. Thank you. Yes, thank you.